If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Pastor Dwight sends his, and Grace in their regards, uh, and uh, he's doing well. He's not feeling horrible, uh, but uh, he is at home uh, sick today, but he just wanted me to let you know that he's not feeling really that bad. Uh, he's, he's doing fine, and uh, I know he's watching right now. Uh, but I did want to mention, and I'll, you'll hear it throughout the sermon this morning, but I, uh, Pastor Grace and I had a, a blessed time down in, in Florida uh, at, the com- at the fellowship. It really was more of a fellowship than it was a conference of just a bunch of pastors and wives and even their children. Uh, but uh, it just is, it was a huge encouragement. And I'm the, I've weaved some of that in through the, the sermon this morning and to give you a little bit of testimony of how, uh, with what went on down there. But when we think of relationships, uh, the title of the message this morning is Gospel-Centered Relationships. Uh, It's the idea really this morning of refreshing one another through gospel living. Uh, And I want to read the text uh, as we begin this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And he know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. So relationships, the title is Gospel-Centered Relationships, and really as we go through the sermon this morning, we're going to see, I'm going to hone in more on the term friendship, uh, but I, I, and we're, you know, we all have them, don't we? We all have relationships, we all have friendships. Uh, in fact, friendship would probably be one of the most popular, uh, probably the most enjoyable uh, next to marriage, and hopefully in your marriage you have a friendship too, uh, but friendships are a very enjoyable uh, relationship that we all have. Now, friendships can be good or bad. I, I will be on, I'll, be, I'll admit that. Uh, we're going to see in the text this morning, uh, we're going to hone in on the idea of friendship, but at its most basic definition, a friend is a person you know well and regard with affection and trust. If you were to look up the definition of friend in dictionaries, the most uh, obvious uh, the most basic definition you're going to find is just simply a person you know well and regard with affection and trust. It's a pretty basic definition, right? Uh, and, and so that's where kind of the baseline of this idea of friendship, the idea of friend that we're going to be working with this morning. But the question then is, what is a true friend? What is a faithful friend? What, what, uh, what are the characteristics of, the, of a true and faithful friendship? Well, a faithful friend does not stray away when life gets difficult. A true and faithful friendship reaches to a level of loyalty. For the Christian, friendship takes on a whole new level. It is a level that the unsaved can't comprehend or even achieve. It is a relationship that bonds together through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. It centers itself in each person's personal relationship with God. We all have Christian friendships and, and there are those that maybe you've had and one of those kinds of friendships where you may not know, see each other for years on end. 
for multiple years. And yet that time when you get together, it's like you picking up from right where you left off. And you know why that is? Because of a common bond. The gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ has more impact than just saving our lives from an eternal punishment in hell. The gospel is a, a way that we are to live because the gospel shows the whole character of God. We're to live out our salvation with fear and trembling, the Bible says. See, Christian friendship, gospel-centered friendship, is, is at the center. It's the love of Christ. It's the Word of God. It's the Spirit of God that enables the Christian to live faithful to one another. You know, friends are such an important aspect to an individual's life. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that I have close Christian friends in my life. There's a friend of mine who's planting a church in, out in uh, Twin Falls, Idaho. And I get his updates on a regular basis. It's exciting to see what God's using, doing through him. Ironically, his name is Aaron and his wife's name is Elizabeth. That was not planned. But it's neat to see what, what God is doing through him and his family. And if we were to get together right now, it would be like we, we just, we've never been apart. Because of the common bond in Christ. As, Christian and with Christ, as Christians, we are to stand by and be loyal to one another as one entity. And so when we take this idea of friendship and we put it inside the church... By its basic definition, the church is to be friends with each person. No, I'm not attesting this morning that all of us have to be literally best friends with every single person in the auditorium. We all know that's impossible. We don't have enough emotions. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough energy to literally be everybody's best friend in here. But you know what the gospel and what the local church allows us to do? is to hurt with one another like we're best friends. It's to love one another like we're best friends. It's all of these things that we're going to see from an illustration that, that Paul gives as he's, as he's writing to Timothy. Paul even explains this about the church in Ephesians 4, 1-3. through 3. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The church is to be knit together in a close manner. We are to love one another. We are to look out for one another. Philippians 2, 1-4 Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and I love this passage as a whole, but it's, I love the, the almost like rhetorical the assumed answer in all these, these therefore, if statements that Paul gives, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there, therefore, if there is any consolation of love, and there is, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose." Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
Do not merely look out for your own interests, personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So taking that basic definition of friend, it's what we have a high regard, an affection, and trust for one another. And inside the church, within the church, as believers, from the, the two passages that I just read through, there's multiple principles on how we are to be so tightly knit together as a church and as friends and have that friendship that is, that is built on Christ. But unfortunately, due to sin in our flesh, this doesn't always manifest itself. It doesn't always manifest itself. Because of our sin and the depravity of our flesh, some friends are good and some are bad. So in our text this morning, as Paul lays out in 2 Timothy 1 here in verses 15 through 18, we're going to see a few traits of what a true, faithful, and gospel-centered friend should look like. But before we dive into our immediate text, I want to give a little bit of a context to this, this passage. It, this passage here, uh, it, when you put it with the preceding paragraph and the following paragraph, it's, it's kind of interesting. In fact, when I started studying for this, this message, and started, it's a message that I preached quite a few years ago. And I, I pulled it up and I was joking with Pastor earlier the uh, middle of last week or whatever, and I told him, I was like, well, I pulled it out. I thought, you know, I'll have a message that I've already done and won't have to do. Well, I literally rewrote the entire sermon. Um, it was horrible. In fact, I don't even think it was very accurate with, as I studied it out more and more. And, and as I studied this text out, and, and what I, the way I looked at it before was just basically this idea of friendship, and the principle is there, but it's so much richer when you start to really look at the preceding and, and the, proce- the preceding paragraphs. If you look, I have the preceding paragraph up there uh, on the screen, but you can look in your, in your Bible as well. I just put it up there because I highlighted two phrases. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Again, he's writing to Timothy here who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to the light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things. For the sake of the gospel I am suffering these things. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard that what I have entrusted to him until that day. Twice in these verses, Paul emphasizes the principle of not being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying to Timothy, don't be ashamed of my tes- the, the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner for the, go- for the suffering of the gospel. And he says, but I am not ashamed. So he's like, don't be ashamed. I'm not ashamed. And he comes then into our text. And it's, it's somewhat, it, it, I don't want to say it's completely parenthetical, but it's, he goes from speaking directly to Timothy to using an illustration. An actual illustration, a personal illustration of something that was real in his own life. 
And so as we look at our text, we're going to see that the gospel is central to friendship. And our main truth this morning is that the gospel empowers faithful and loyal friendship. You want to have faithful and loyal friendship with the person across the auditorium, with the person behind you, with the person in front of you. The gospel is the centerpiece to it. It's what is going to enrich that friendship more than anything else. It's, the fr- it's, it's what bonds us. It's the, it is what puts the church together, isn't it? it is, we are the church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the gospel of Christ. Because if you don't believe the gospel and you've never got, repented of your sins and asked Christ to come into your heart and save you, you can't be a part of God's church. So the gospel empowers faithful and loyal friendship. <coughs> and so our first point this morning as we look at this is that a godly friendship consistently encourages others. Look at verse 16. I'm going to take some of these verses a little bit. I'm, I'm mixing the text up a little bit just to, for uh, as far as the, the framing of the message this morning. So we're going to jump to verse 16 first. and says, A godly friendship consistently encourages others. Look at verse 16. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. Paul is in prison. Paul really, uh, had, the situation for Paul in this imprisonment was not like the one that, uh, where he was in house arrest. He, he had really no hope at this point of, of being released, as far as that went. And if we look in verse 15, what happened in verse 15? Why did he need this refreshing? Verse 15, and we'll look at this uh, a little bit more specific in just a few minutes. He says, you are aware of the fact, he's speaking to Timothy, he said, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Figilus and Hermogenes. Now, Timothy here is, is hearing Paul write this, and he says then, that Onesiphorus, in this time where people have forsaken me, have, have left me, Onesiphorus often refreshed me because he wasn't ashamed of my chains, my imprisonment. The word that Paul uses here for the word refreshed is a unique word. And it, it, and it was something that I, I was really neat as I, as I was digging into it. The word that Paul uses for ref, that's translated refreshed here this is the only time this Greek word is used in the entire New Testament. And it comes, the, it, it, it comes from the root word, uh, suke, which means life or soul. What Paul is saying is that Onesiphorus came and literally Paul was discouraged. How many of you would feel great if everybody you knew, or majority of people that you knew around you just forsook you because of your stand on the gospel. They just left you. You know, it's this thing, these kinds of things are happening even in our, in our world today, around the world. People get saved and their families forsake them. But for, for Paul here, he is in prison and people have forsaken him and, and he's saying that, 
that Onesiphorus came and literally refreshed his life. He brought energy back into his life. And he just didn't do it once. He kept coming back over and over and over and over again. Onesiphorus was infusing his life into Paul's life. He had heard that Paul was in prison. He had heard, because most likely if you look at verse 18, Onesiphorus got to know Paul in Ephesus. Most likely. And he had heard about how the, the predicament that Paul was in. See, behind the te- this text lies the fact that Paul really was a lover of people and that he had an immense capacity for friendship. The fact that Paul was discouraged, that his life, that he needed encouragement, one shows his humanity, right? Sometimes we look at the life of Paul, we look at Paul and we're like, man, look at how amazing he was. He, he handled everything. He was shipwrecked. He was in prison multiple times. Uh, you know, he was bitten by a snake. He was beaten and left for dead. Paul had real struggles like you and me. And here he's in prison again, and it's towards the end of his life, because look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. He understood that his life most likely was coming to an end. And, and Paul's capacity for fr- immense capacity for friendship was why he struggled. You know, if, the more you love people, the more capacity you have for that, when, when, when there isn't that there, when there are people aren't around you, it's hard, right? It's hard not to have people in your life. And... and and I would say that to a degree, Paul was discouraged because there was no one for him to infect his, infuse his life into. People have just forsaken him. Onesiphorus brought energy and life to Paul. The common bond, though, between these two men, the source of energy and life, was the gospel. How do we know that the gospel was what infused energy into Paul? When Paul uses the phrase, was not ashamed of my chains, a lot of times in Scripture, he's referring, yes, to his imprisonment, but he's implying the fact that he's in jail because of what? The gospel. And Onesiphorus wasn't ashamed of that. In fact, we know from Philippians 1.21 that Paul says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's life was the gospel. It was the person of Christ. Philippians 3.10 That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Onesiphorus knew what would encourage Paul. He knew it was the gospel. Does the gospel encourage you this morning? Is that what just brings revitalization to your life? Or is it something else that you depend on to bring you energy during the day? When you're discouraged, 
And it's interesting that as Paul is saying that Onesiphorus came and often refreshed him, what does Paul do in return? It's not really a prayer here that he's praying. It's more of a, a wish that he's, he's speaking to the Lord about, or he's just a general, says the Lord in verse 16, the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. Verse 18, the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, speaking of the day of judgment when the Lord returns. Second Advent. Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Onesiphorus wasn't ashamed of the gospel. And he's using this as a personal illustration to Timothy to say, Here, here's a man who came and refreshed me with the gospel. It's the gospel that is the center of life. It's the gospel that, that, that in, brings energy to my life. And it should bring energy to you. We are to stand for the gospel. You know, pastor has been speaking of suffering through, through 1 Peter. There's a possibility we could suffer. I'm not saying you stand there and, and ask for it. <laughs> but look at what, I mean, you look at Paul and, and pastors that I've read, he says what, he he was willing and fine with sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Onesiphorus was coming to him and encouraging him, refreshing him. Later in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul again emphasizes the centrality of the gospel to life. 2 Timothy 2.10 says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul, in return for his encouragement and kindness, desires for the Lord to be merciful to Onesiphorus. You see the refreshing aspect. And, and not, Onesiphorus wasn't just refreshing Paul, but what was Paul doing for Onesiphorus? He was refreshing Onesiphorus. He was ministering to him. And encouraging him in the gospel. And the gospel is so much more meaty than anything else that we could discuss and have a discussion on. So I ask, what do your friendships look like? Are they centered on the gospel? Is the gospel the centerpiece of your relationships? Say, well, how can I have a gospel-centered relationship with unsaved people? You live that gospel out in front of them. You live the character of God in front of them. You show the love of God to them. One of the pastors who preached down in Florida shared a a testimony of how right next to their their house is the church and and a, a kind of a rough guy came in and his bike needed help. And the pastor just went out there and stood there and held tools for the guy. Went out and got his own tool, tool thing. Came back out there so the guy could try to fix the carburetor on his Harley. Well then, later on, he comes back with his Corvette that needed work on. And he told the pastor, he's like, hey, hey I, I told the, all the guy, everybody at the bar this last week that you're a cool dude. You didn't preach to me the first time you saw me. 
what did that pastor do? That pastor infused his life, the gospel, into that man. He showed the love of Christ to that man. Do you do that? Now this text is speaking of inside the church to, to, to believers. There's the, the illustration is that of believers. Do you infuse your life? Do you walk through life with others? Are you okay if they call you at 2.30 in the morning? Are you there to refresh them when a loved one is sick or a loved one passes away? Are you there to encourage them when they're struggling spiritually? One summer in college, I worked at Northland Christian Camp as a counselor. And about three or four weeks before camp ended, uh, one of our, the guy counselors received word that his dad had committed suicide. How do you encourage a guy, a young man who is 18, 19, or I think 19 or 20 years old, when his father just took his own life? The gospel. The gospel. And we rallied around him put our arms around him. We cried with him. We loved on him. We prayed with him. This summer, that summer, the Lord, I think, really wanted to teach our staff something about this. Because a few weeks later, about two weeks later, during a family camp, three of uh, the staff members, they're, they're his, his parents came and, and his younger siblings as well. I think there's like six kids in the family. Uh, the three older ones were in their 20s. And they were out, they were at the, in the gym at, at Northland playing basketball and their dad dropped dead right there on the basketball court. What do you do? Those, those individuals, I still remember it vividly. I was working at the zip line with one of the kid, one of with one of the other adult kids, and I saw some people racing to go get them. And then I found out after I was done what happened. You put your arms around them, you pray with them, you share the gospel with them, you talk about God's love for them. As we were down in Florida this week, Pastor Grace and myself, stories like this were shared. It was one of the most encouraging two and a half day, days of fellowship with other believers that I've had all year. It's a highlight. You come away enriched because pastors and pastors' wives are sharing their hearts sharing their struggles. But we're all railing around each other and praying and putting our arms around each other and encouraging one another and refreshing one another with the gospel. Yes, I could go and I could say, I'm, I, you can offer maybe to watch their kids or you can do certain things, but there's nothing more encouraging than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So 
So what does it look like, though? How does this look? You can ask people how, what are, you can refresh one another by talking and sharing your devotional life together. What I'm talking about right now is, is exactly why we want to see a disciple-making culture in our church. It revitalizes, it, it brings this life to the church when you are walking step and step and doing life with one another. When you're sharing your heart and you're talking about God's word together, it's a lifelong connection. And it brings lifelong encouragement, even in the discouraging times. See, Onesiphorus was refreshing Paul. But not only did he consistently encourage Paul and refresh him, but he did so in any circumstance. So the church in Ephesus and the whole Asia, the churches and the, the believers in the Asia area region, of whom he mentions Phygelus and Hermogenes, because of Paul's imprisonment, because of the gospel, because of him being in prison for the gospel, they, they didn't want to have, they were afraid for their own lives. He was an enemy of the state. They didn't want anything to do with him. You realize that Onesiphorus risked his life to refresh Paul. He didn't know where Paul was being held. So if you can imagine with me, Onesiphorus going through the streets, knocking on doors, talking to people on the street, risking his life that maybe one of those people are going to turn him in and he'll lose his life. A godly friendship consistently encourages others in any circumstance. See, Paul even mentioned, as I read from 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, in verse 6 he even says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Even in this letter to Timothy, Paul is pouring himself out to Timothy. But he also mentions in chapter 4, verse 10, others who had left him. We see Demas, having loved this present world, had deserted him and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens had left and gone to Galatia. The circumstance we find Paul in was not optimistic or encouraging or safe for anyone looking for him. Do you, only, do you seek to only be encouraging when it suits you best? When it's easiest for you? Or you know that person the best? We need to be seeking to be that godly friend, consistently encouraging one another, no matter the circumstance. No matter the circumstance. Onesiphorus knew the trouble he would go through in searching for Paul, and he still openly searched him out and eventually found him. He was diligent in searching for him. He didn't give up. How diligent are you in seeking to be an encouragement to those in our church?
and maybe those you don't know as well. One neat thing at this conference was when we had a time of prayer, the, all the, the ladies went in another room, and I don't know how they split up, but the way we split up in the auditorium was he took all the churches from the Midwest and put them in a group with all the, pa- all the pastors from uh, like the Northwest and the, and the Southeast with the, you know, the Northeast. And, and just, so we're, you're, you're talking with men that I didn't know. And hearing their burdens and praying for them. And, con- and, and connecting and, and having that networking of, of, of believers to be an encouragement to one another and to do it on a consistent basis. See, Romans 12, 9 and 10 says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. As we are seeking to be consistently Encouraging one another, no matter the circumstance, this love that we are to show, as uh, one of the pastors shared in, a, in, a, in one of the challenges, was that from these verses, that we need to be honest in our love. Love needs to be genuine. It needs to be holy. He also mentioned that it needs to be devoted to others. It's too easy for us, unfortunately, as Christians to sit in the, in the pew, to sit at home and to say, well, they aren't encouraging me. They haven't called me. Now, should we all be calling one another? And that's the beauty of this passage, that if we are all seeking to consistently encourage one another, no matter the circumstance, no one will fall through the cracks. But if you look at this passage, Paul isn't saying, isn't giving an illustration of him saying, oh, woe is me. No one, everyone has forsaken me. He's given us an illustration of he was in dire straits. People had left him. And here's a guy who went and searched him out. It wasn't like Paul was sending letters to people saying, hey, I need some encouragement. Why aren't you coming and seeing me? My encouragement to you is instead of worrying about people calling you, you call other people. You go out to lunch with people. You talk about the gospel with others. You invest your life in others. You know what the gospel does is when that is happening, you know what happens is it's reciprocated. Why? Because the gospel, that's what a gospel-centered relationship does. It's exciting. It's fun. It's refreshing. But our love for one another needs to be genuine and holy. We need to be devoted. We can't think that we're too busy for other people. It doesn't fit my schedule. God commands us to love one another, Matthew twenty two thirty nine. That as we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. As you seek to make the gospel the center of all your relationships, you will find yourself having more and more of a spiritual burden to make a gospel impact in their life. 
And it's exciting. And you know that, 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 that iron sharpening iron starts taking place. And it's so much richer than how many times our sports teams lose. Or the latest and greatest thing technology-wise. And those aren't bad conversations to have. But they're not going to bring true refreshment in your life and long-lasting refreshment. In fact, they'll probably bring discouragement. (laughs) At least here in Michigan. The great truth behind living with the gospel at the center of your interactions and relationships is that God uses that to bless and encourage you. And the more you share it with one another, now you want to take it. And, you, and all of a sudden there's an unsaved person in your neighborhood, you know, an unsaved co-worker, unsaved family, and you're just hungry. You want to give the gospel because it's such a part of your life. You get excited. You want to share it with everyone. There's power in numbers. And if you know you have 150 people behind you praying for you, doing life with you, isn't that so much more exciting you can say, hey, I know the power of God's behind me. I'm talking to this person. I'm building a relationship with this person. I hope I want to see this person saved and discipled and added to the church and baptized. Well, baptized then added to the church to be scripturally correct. But a godly friendship is consistent no matter the circumstance. And then third, a godly friendship consistently and unashamedly stands with others for the gospel. We can't live ashamed of the gospel. Onesiphorus, as I've mentioned already, did not shy away from finding Paul. Are you ashamed of the gospel this morning? Does the way you live point to the fact that you may be ashamed of the gospel? How often is the gospel a part of your conversation how often are you looking and taking opportunity of the the opportunities God gives you to share the gospel because remember this 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 section is in the middle of Paul talking to Timothy saying don't be ashamed of the gospel here is a man who was not ashamed and in his not being ashamed he refreshed me in the gospel and then the the proceeding paragraph gives three illustrations of how we are to allow the gospel to be centered in our life. If you're not investing your life in doing life together with another person for the sake of the gospel, why not? Why aren't you looking for an individual to study the Bible with? What's holding you back? What's keeping you from seeking out another believer to do life with for the rest of your life? And to have a little bit more of that intimate side of things than you can with every single person. But as we all seek to do that as a church and refresh one another, you will find yourself actually becoming deeper and closer with people you never thought you would.
had a friend in college during my sophomore year encourage me during the week of finals because I was afraid I was going to flunk a certain class. For me, it would, a flunk would have been a C, uh, anything lower than a C because it was uh, required for my major. It was intro to philosophy. I had a C- minus going into the final exam. Studied eight hours for that final exam. I was actually crying on the phone to my mom as a 21-year-old studying for that final exam. Afraid that I was going to be embarrassed, looking foolish, having to take the class all over again when my friends didn't. But one of my friends came and encouraged me in the Lord. Encouraged me with biblical truth. And by God's grace, I do not have to take that class over again. I got a decent grade in the final. I had 200 questions to get a good grade. So, But this friend of mine was dedicated. He pushed me to excel to my fullest potential possible for the Lord. And he's still doing it today. Let's not live selfish. Let's live gospel-centered. Unashamed of the gospel. It's not about you. And it's not about me. It's all about God. It's about the gospel. It's about living out our salvation with fear and trembling. He has given us the gospel to guard it, to to proclaim it. So this morning, what about you? Are you seeking to have godly friendships that consistently and unashamedly stand for the gospel? Are you seeking to have friendships that are consistently refreshing one another no matter the circumstances? Because the gospel empowers faithful and loyal friendship. It is the gospel that does this. And the gospel being centerpiece of our lives as, individ- as Christians, as a church, is clearly given to us in Matthew 28. Folks, we don't have a choice about the gospel. It's a command from God that it be centered in our life. Is it, is it the centerpiece of your friendships, your relationships? Does it need to be more of the center? Maybe... It is here, but it's not over here. And you realize, you know, I I, I need the gospel to be more central in all of my relationships. Are you being proactive and looking for others to infuse energy into for the sake of the gospel? I pray that this, this message this morning has been an encouragement to you. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I thank you and praise you for your name. Lord, you're such a good and gracious God. And the good news of Jesus Christ that you have given to us is unfathomable. The love, the mercy, the grace that you have poured out to us. Lord, I pray that this morning that our hearts will be convicted to do the same. That we will infuse 
the gospel, a gospel-centered life into others. That we wouldn't be about ourselves, but that we would be about you and what you have done for us. So we thank you and praise you for your name. In your name we pray, amen.